Well, take your Bibles and find Revelation chapter 1, would you? Revelation chapter number 1 with me. Revelation chapter number 1. As I announced Sunday night, I have been pondering and thinking for several months about doing a study in prophecy. Uh, the book of Revelation and other prophetic scripture. And tonight we'll begin that. And of course, it will take us a little while to get through it. And um, it'll be my task to try to keep you interested in the subject for as long as it takes us. And uh, prophecy does hold a great interest for God's people because it is our God telling us what the future holds. Sometimes we are told in great detail. Sometimes he gives us just a sketch. But our God does know the end from the beginning. And um, studying prophecy can be a daunting task because it covers such a large footprint in the scripture. Uh, someone has said that 25% of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. And so we have to be willing to be serious students of the word of God. I think that the Bible is a thinking man's book. It makes you think. Uh, it's not written in little sound bites. And uh, you have to read, you have to study, you have to compare scripture with scripture. There's great unrest in our world right now. And uh, we feel like that we are on the precipice of end time events, that things are winding down. And so we turn to the Bible to see what God has to say about the future. It won't take time tonight because I sat in the office a little while ago and I, I scratched out about five pages of notes in mercy to you because I knew this was going to go long. So I, I took a lot of notes out. And so I won't go through tonight and tell you my journey and my interest in prophecy. But from as far as I can remember, uh, even as a teenager, teenage preacher boy, I've had a fascination with Bible prophecy. I want to throw out the caveat that I am not an expert. And um, when we are done, we will not have all of the answers. We will still have questions because there are some things the Bible simply does not tell us. But there is a special joy, I think, in uncovering the truth that God has revealed to us in his scriptures concerning the future. Bible prophecy is a subject that many Bible students are interested in, but they are intimidated by. I think our interest lies somewhere in fascination in what the Bible reveals and the fear of what is unknown. And for that reason, prophecy is largely a much neglected study. It's a challenging study. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered, as I've said. But it's a rewarding study because how can you have any hope for the future outside of Scripture? Right now, the nations are gathering in the Middle East and the war sabers are rattling again. Hamas launched this horrific attack against the nation of Israel, I guess three weeks, four weeks now. Israel is now launching an all-out assault against the Gaza Strip and Hamas. Massive demonstrations being held on college universities and large cities in support of the Palestinians and against Israel. Russia and China, they are rising in the 
geopolitical arena in the world and the United States seems to be dwindling in power and influence as a dominant superpower in the world, things are changing. And we don't know but that the current unrest in the Middle East certainly has the makings of a third world war. I'm not saying that that's what's happening, but it certainly has the makings of it. And when there's unrest in the world, and particularly in the Middle East, Christians run to the Bible, not CNN, not Fox News. We run to the Bible for answers. We know that there will not be any peace in the Middle East or in the world until the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, comes. But do these current events tell us anything about the nearness of his return? Are we looking right now at signs of the end times? How do we interpret what is happening in our world right now in light of the scripture? One of the things that I wrestled with when I was getting ready for this series, and you know me long enough to know that I simply cannot begin a study in a book of the Bible or a subject without an introduction. I have long introductions. I, I don't know how. I honestly don't know how just to launch into it. I have to have a runway and to get the plane off of the ground. And one of the things that I... I wrestled with, I talked with Jacob over this, is, is how to lay this out. And what I want to do tonight, it's just introduction. It's all that it is tonight. We'll look at three verses in just a minute and just kind of look at them a little bit. But, but no great mysteries will be revealed tonight, all right? But I, I, I wanted to figure out how are we going to approach this. And, and, and I want to just give you a sketch of where we are headed over the next couple of, well years. <laughs> One of the approaches was to go through a book of the Bible like the book of Revelation. The issue that I have is that there is a lot of prophecy that is not in Revelation. There are some end time events that are not mentioned in the book and there are other end time events that are briefly mentioned. For example, Revelation has 13 chapters dedicated to the tribulation but no mention of the rapture. I believe there is a picture of the rapture in John 4, or in Revelation 4, but there's no specific detail about the rapture. You have to go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 5, John 14, to get the doctrine of the rapture. Revelation chapter 20, one chapter talks about the millennial reign of Christ, but it doesn't say anything about the millennial temple. Will the feast be reinstituted? Will there be sacrifices in that temple? Revelation 20 doesn't say anything about that. You got to go to Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel 40 through 48 to find out about that. So, so, so what I want to do is I want to use the book of Revelation as a base, as a base. We will, in time, go through this book verse by verse, just like we do any other book, but I want to give ourselves the latitude right now. I'm telling you up front that when we get to a portion of prophecy that is not covered in Revelation, I'm giving myself the liberty, the permission to step outside of Revelation, to go to those other passages and to bring them in. So it is not 
so much just a study of Revelation. We'll cover it all, but it's really a study of prophetic scripture as a whole. And I know what you're thinking. We'll be halfway through the tribulation before we get done with it. But here's what I have done. Here's what I have done. I have decided that if the rapture happens and we are not finished with this series, I've given all of my notes to Brother Petty. So that he'll be able to finish it for those of you who are still here. Thinking of you even when I am in heaven. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. We bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein for the time is at hand. I'm reminded of a pastor of a country congregation who had been asked by his church to preach through the book of Revelation. He was intimidated by the book and he kept putting them off. But several times his parishioners would come, we would like to hear about the book of Revelation. Would you preach through the book of Revelation? And finally he got up one night in his church and he said, I am not going to preach through the book of Revelation and I have three reasons. He said, reason number one is I don't know anything about the book of Revelation. He said, number two, you don't know anything about the book of Revelation. He said, number three, nobody knows anything about the book of Revelation. I think that's some people's approach to the book. For sure, there has been more debate over this book than any book written. I have a number of commentaries in my library on Revelation, and in those commentaries... I can find disagreements on everything. In the commentaries that I have, and I have commentaries from across the board, but in those commentaries it says that Christ is coming, Christ is coming twice, he's already been here and he's not coming back. In those commentaries it says the tribulation is future, the tribulation is past, we're in it right now. In those commentaries, it says the rapture happens before the tribulation. The rapture happens way halfway through the tribulation. The rapture happens after the tribulation. There is no rapture. Those commentaries says the kingdom is coming. The kingdom's already here. The kingdom is a figment of the imagination. But I would just say that the book of Revelation is not meant to be avoided. It is meant to be read and understand. It says that right there in the first three verses. What most see as a mystery that's written as a revelation. Now again, again, I, I can't just start with verse 1. I, I can't do that. So I would say to you tonight that the most important thing that you can do when you open the book of Revelation is what you do before you open the book of Revelation. And that is determine how you are going to interpret the book. Is this history or is it prophecy? Is it literal 
or is an allegory? So you have to determine how am I going to approach the book because you will find in it whatever you want to find. So very quickly, let me tell you that there are four main ways to interpret the book of Revelation. There's first of all, an allegorical method of interpretation. Allegorical is to spiritualize the book. It is to turn it into an allegory, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. It's not actual prophecy, it's not actual history, but it's a metaphor of the struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan, to allegorize it. Uh, those who have been in Bible Institute knows that that was birthed in the Alexandrian school of theology with such notable heretics as Origen and, 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 and Clement. And it's, it's really nothing more than a loophole to deny the parts of the Bible that you don't want to believe. It doesn't really interpret scripture and it makes the mind of the reader the final authority on what the Bible really says. Now there are allegories in the Bible but well, that's not the same as allegorizing scripture. For example, in Galatians chapter four, Paul uses the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael to teach a spiritual truth, but he did not deny that there were two brothers named Isaac and Ishmael and that they had a conflict. He used that conflict, a real conflict, to illustrate a conflict between the flesh and, and the spirit. To allegorize would we say there wasn't no Isaac there wasn't any Ishmael it's a made-up story to illustrate a spiritual truth so I want you to know that nothing in Revelation is made up nothing is non-literal everything will happen exactly as it says it's an allegorical method the second method of interpretation is the preterist method word preterist comes from a Latin preposition that means past. So a preterist is someone who says that it is past. Everything in the book has already happened. Revelation is history. It's not prophecy. It's looking backward. It's not looking forward. Now, a preterist, they all agree that it happened in the past. They don't agree when in the past that it happened. Some would say it happened during the reign of Emperor Nero. Nero in the AD 60s, AD 64, AD 65. Others say, no, that was too soon. It happened under the reign of Domitian back around 96, 98 AD. So it happened in the past. There's just two schools of when did it happen. Now you say, what's the big deal? What, what does it matter when it happened? Here, here, is, here is the reason why. If the book of Revelation, now this is deep, this is deep, all right? If the events in the book of Revelation happened in the past, are you ready for this? Then they can't happen in the future. I told you, you should get your pencil out, all right? I'm gonna drop some nuggets on you here tonight, all right? If, 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 if the tribulation events, Revelation 6 through 19, all of those horrible things, if that happened during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, well, then we don't look forward to a future tribulation. If you can relegate the tribulation to the past and you can relegate the millennial reign of Christ 
to the past. That's why 10 out of 10 Catholic theologians are preterists because they don't believe in a future millennial reign of Christ. There is a third method of interpretation and that's historical. Historical sees Revelation as an unfolding of prophecy. The book is prophetic, but it is prophecy that has already or is right now being fulfilled. Now, now, now very quickly, here, here's the problem with that. The problem is that it tends to lend Bible students to interpret the book in light of current events. And that can be very dangerous. When we become newspaper exegetes and we try to force interpretations in what we see in the newspaper. One example of that is every madman that comes on the scene must be the Antichrist. It's been Mussolini, it's been Hitler, it's been Kissinger, it's been Hillary, it might be Hillary, but it, it's, been, it's been everything. So we're not historical. But then the futurist, the futurist says that Revelation chapter four to the end of the chapter is future. That the tribulation, the second coming, the, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial reign, destruction of the world, creation of the new heaven and earth, that is all in the future. It's going to take place just as the Bible says it. Well, we are futurists is what we are. That's, that's what I believe, that's what I believe. I'm not an allegorist, I'm not a preterist, I don't believe in the historical, I believe that it is all future. Now I'll tell you one reason why I believe that, all right, and you will be thankful that I deleted about five pages of the wonky detailed stuff, all right, and I got rid of all of that. I'll tell you one reason why I believe that these events are future. Are you ready for this? Now, now here's another nugget, you ready to get your pencil out? It's because there is no time in history when the events have taken place. You can't put Revelation 6 through 19 anywhere in history. Revelation speaks of, of, of resurrections, but the grave still holds the bodies of all of those who have died. Revelation speaks of the tyranny of the Antichrist, but that man is still hiding in the shadows awaiting for his opportunity to grab power. Revelation speaks of the literal reign of Christ upon this earth, yet we still anticipate his kingdom. So we are futurists. You've got to know how you're going to approach this book. Now very quickly, very quickly, before I get to the text, and I'll, I'll get to the text, before I get to the text, but just, just introduce the book of Revelation to you just very quickly, all right? And the first thing you need to know about the book of Revelation is the person who wrote the book. One of the first things I do when I open up a book is who wrote it? Who wrote it? Now, the author is John. Here's how I know that. He says that he is. Five times in this book, John names himself five times. And so it's in the title. It is five times in the text. It was widely believed by the early church that it was the apostle John who wrote the book, 
But in the third century, there was a heretic named Dionysius. If you were in church history, you would know this. But there was a heretic in the third century named Dionysius that raised the theory that it was a different John that wrote Revelation. It was not the apostle John, therefore it is not inspired scripture. Dionysius was a student of Origin, another heretic of the first degree. And Dionysius wrote around 250 AD a little pamphlet to prove that the John who wrote Revelation is not John the Apostle. Now he had great evidence for that hypothesis. His great evidence is that in Ephesus where John died, there were two tombstones with the name John on it. He supposed that one was John the Apostle and one was John the Elder. And it was John the Elder that wrote the book of Revelation. It kind of reminds me of the archaeologists that were digging and they found a skull and they did some DNA tests on it and they determined that it was the skull of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. What they didn't know is that across the way there was another set of archaeologists that had found a skull and they had determined that it was John the Baptist as well. We now have two skulls that belong to John the Baptist. <laughs> One of them is certainly going to be discredited. So they put their heads together and they came up with a solution. One skull was just a little smaller than the other, so they determined that the one, the smaller skull, was John the Baptist when he was a little boy, and the other was John the Baptist when he was a grown man. This is the kind of foolishness that you read when you read liberal skeptics and scoffers of the Bible. Huh? Dionysius said that John never says that he's the son of Zebedee in the book, so it must have been a different John. One of the ways that we determine things like authorship and dating of books is by the writings of extra biblical works. It's not infallible sources, but we go back and we read sermons and things that church fathers in the first and second and third and fourth century wrote, and we use that as collaborative information. And, and these church fathers that were closer to the source writing, and, and, and there was a church father named Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr died in 135 AD in Ephesus. Ephesus is where John died in around 98 AD. So he is only there about 20 or 30 years after John. He's really close to the source. And Justin Martyr was having a debate with a guy named Trophy and he, or, 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 or Trifo and he wrote a track and in that track he said, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem. That's a man who lived in Ephesus very shortly after John died. So I believe it was John the Apostle. That's what it says in the text. It's the Apostle John. If I ever publish notes on these, I'll give you all of those pages and all of those arguments on apostolic authority. But I think that you believe that. I think you're convinced. It is John the Apostle that wrote the book. And it belongs in the canon of Scripture. It is interesting. We're studying the Gospel of John. It's interesting to read the Gospel of John and Revelation and see the similarities in those two books. Did you know that John is the only Bible writer to ascribe the title of the Word to Jesus Christ? He did it in John chapter 1. He did it in his first epistle. He does it in the book of Revelation. 
John is the only author to call Jesus the Lamb of God. He does it in John chapter 1. He does it in Revelation chapter 1. John is the only author to speak of the spear that pierces his side. John 19, he talks about that. And in Revelation 1 and verse 7, they also which pierced him. He's the only gospel writer to mention that. John is the only one to mention that he is the one who has no beginning or ending. He does that in John 1 and verse 1. He does it in John 1 and verse number 8. I think it's John the Apostle that wrote the book. Then secondly, I, 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 secondly, the period when the book was written. I mentioned to you that it was written during the reign of an emperor. The question is, which emperor? Is it under Nero or is it under Domitian? You're dating a book, there's external, there's internal evidence. The preterist has to place it. And here, here's the reason why that, that matters. Here's the reason why. It's because if it is in the past, if you put it in the reign of Nero, 64, 65 AD, then right after that, AD 70, you have the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you can take all of that tribulation events and you can dump it right there in AD 70 if it's written before that. But if it is written after AD 70, the reign of Domitian, then, then you can't take it back and put it in AD 70. And so you're kind of in a little pickle right there. That's the reason why they say it's written during the reign of Nero. It wasn't, it was written in the reign of Domitian. It was the last book in the canon of scripture. I give you a couple of reasons, a couple of reasons, and, and I'll, just, I'll just go through some of these real quickly. The message to the church at Laodicea is that it is rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It is a rich church. In AD 62, there was an earthquake in Laodicea that leveled the city, leveled it. If this book is written just two years later in AD 64, AD 65, how in the world are they rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing? It does not fit. During the reign, John wrote this while he was in exile. Exile, a political prisoner in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Nero did not exile. He executed. It is Domitian that exiled political prisoners. Now, those are some of the reasons why we believe that the book is written during the reign of Domitian. It could not have been written earlier. Thirdly, quickly, I, I want to get to my text quickly. The people to whom the book is written. It's found in verse number 19, right? Under Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, and Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches, we'll talk a lot about them when we get to Revelation 2 and verse 3. There is the place from which the book is written. It's written from the Isle Patmos while John is exiled as a political prisoner under the emperor Domitian. And then quickly the plan with which the book is written. Look at verse number 19 if you would. Here's the outline for the book and no other book in the Bible has as clear an outline as this book. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The things which thou hast seen, that's past. The things which are, that's present. The things which shall be Hereafter, We'll deal with that outline when we get to it. So with that enthralling introduction out of the way, 
I turn to our text in Revelation chapter 1. Blessed is he that readeth, readeth. They say that a homiletics, one of the most important things in a sermon is a good introduction. That an audience determines in the first three to four minutes whether they are going to listen to the rest of the sermon. Am I interested in what the preacher has to say? It persuades the listeners that, that there is some value to this. You should pay some attention because this could be informative. It could be inspiring. It could change your life forever. I don't know of any book that has a better introduction than the book of Revelation. He introduces a person, a process, a period of time, and a purpose. So notice with me, first of all, the person revealed in the book. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in your Bible, that's probably not the title of the book. In my Thai Bible, it is the revelation of St. John the Divine. In 2006, I preached through the book of Revelation in this pulpit for the first time. I knew virtually nothing about the book of Revelation in 2006. But the good people suffered through that and graciously. And I remember, because I went back and looked at the old notes, I took a great issue with the title. St. John the Divine. He is not divine. He is not deity. He's just a man. However, I looked the word up in the dictionary. It's always good to do. And I discovered that the word divine is just an old English word for a man of God. And in no way is it saying that he is a God. He was a man that knew God. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book is characterized as a revelation. To reveal is to make something known that was before unknown or not revealed. Many Christians are afraid of the book. It's too vague. It's too obscure. It is too complex. The devil would have you to believe that you cannot trust Genesis and you cannot understand Revelation. But it's not the mystery of Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is written to be understood. Then the book is sometimes called the Apocalypse. The word apocalypse is a transliterated word from the Greek word apocalypsis, and here's what that word means. It means to unveil. It means to take away the covering to reveal. In other words, apocalypse means revelation. Therefore, there is no need to call it the apocalypse. It is the revelation. Everybody knows what a revelation is. Nobody knows what an apocalypse is, and so that's just to mean to make you sound smart. It is not the apocalypse, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the little word of. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So does that phrase mean that it is the revelation about Jesus Christ? Or does the revelation by Jesus Christ? What's that say? I favor the view that the statement is primarily that Jesus Christ is the source of the revelation, but it does no harm to say that Jesus Christ is the subject of the revelation. The book is about him and it is by him. So, so the book is primarily about Jesus Christ. It's not the unveiling of a prophetic plan. It's the unveiling of a person. 
Martin Luther, the reformer that we do not follow, had misgivings about certain books of the Bible, and he really did not care for the book of Revelation. Martin Luther wrote in one of his commentaries, he said, my spirit cannot adapt itself to this book, and a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in the book. Well, Martin had it wrong. Christ is the theme of the book. Martin Luther, another reformer, wrote commentaries on just about every book of the New Testament except Revelation. He did not touch the book of Revelation. And the reason why the reformers did not have a high view of Revelation is because the book teaches a literal thousand year reign of Christ, which is hard doctrine for our millennialists. And so they just wanted to stay away from the book. We make a mistake when we approach the book just looking for the future. I promise you the greatest blessing of the book is not what it reveals about the future. It is what it reveals about Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, which God gave unto him. So some take that phrase to mean that the Father reveals the contents of the book to the Son as new information. He reveals the prophetic layout to the son first, and so then the son gives it to the angel, and the angel gives it to John, and John gives it to the churches, and it is new information every step of the way. Now we know that as the eternal son of the Godhead, that Jesus Christ is omniscient, we know that that he has no need of revelation. However, in becoming a man, we know that he limited himself. And the Bible says that he, he, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. As the son of God, he knows all things. As the son of man, he grew in knowledge. Would you agree with that? In fact, one of the things that the son of man voluntarily surrendered knowledge of was the hour of his future glorification. This is what he said in the book of Acts, of that, or the book of Mark, of that day and that hour knoweth no man. Know that the, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So is the Father revealing new information to the Son at this point? Is that what that means? I understand the great mystery, but I think it stretches the text too far to say that the Father is revealing the contents of the book to Jesus Christ as some new mystery that he did not know beforehand. Christ is not in his humiliation now. He has been exalted by the Father. So I don't see this as a secret that he does not know. I see it as the roles of the Father and Son and the purposes of God. The person revealed in the book and then quickly the process recognized in the book the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, the source of the revelation is God. What you are about to read comes directly from the throne of God. And he sent it and signified it by his angel unto the servant John. Several times in the book we will see an angel coming. He gets this message by an angel. Angels play a prominent role. And there is one angel, we'll find him. There is one angel that plays a very prominent role in the book, but he's not named. I'll tell you right now who he is. I believe it's Gabriel. And the reason why I believe it's Gabriel, because in Daniel chapter 8, 
Gabriel comes to Daniel and opens prophecies to Daniel, same things that he tells John. So I think that it is Gabriel. We'll look at him when we get there. Signified it by his angel and to his servant John. Interesting that in his gospel he always writes in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved, never names himself. But when he gets to the revelation, it's all in the first person. Names himself five times. And then look at verse number two, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's why, he's ex- why he is exiled in Patmos. Look at verse nine. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The record is in the gospels and his preaching and for what he wrote and testified in the gospel of John is why he is now on an island called Patmos. Who bear record, bear record. That means that you publicly testify to what you know. He put his name to it. He put it down on paper. He's willing to stand and give a report as this is factual truth. When you bear record of something, you say, this is true. This is true. This is true. In fact, hold your finger right here. Are you still with me? Hold your finger right here. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'll show you something here. This is Bible study night. John chapter 1. Look at verse 32. John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. The first reference to him bearing record is that the Father put his Spirit on Jesus Christ. Verse 33, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, unto whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. There's the second thing that he bore record to, that this is the Son of God. I know it's true. I'll put my name to it. Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 16, these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. That's the third time that somebody bear record and people bear record that Jesus had the power to raise somebody from the dead. John chapter 19, John chapter 19, here's the fourth record, John chapter 19, and, and um, I, 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 I'll just come down to verse 34. One of the soldiers of the spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, and he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith, is what, that he saith truth, that he, he might believe, he bears record that, that, that he actually died. He died the way that he was prophesied. Then in Revelation chapter one, our verse, he bears record that one day Jesus Christ will come again and establish a kingdom. Five records that are bore of Jesus Christ. So come back to Revelation chapter one. He bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So the book is for those who are believers. It is not for skeptics. It is not for scoffers. God gives inside information to his servants.
And then thirdly, the period referenced in the book. I want to say something about this. In verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So he wants you to read it with urgency, with immediacy, with, with some expectancy, it, and not to read it fast, but to believe the things are getting ready to, to happen. But there's been a lot of angst over the word shortly, shortly, because it's been 2,000 years, and these things still have not happened. So that's caused a lot of Bible students to say, well, the word shortly should actually be suddenly. It's not going to happen soon, but when it does happen, it's going to be real fast. That when the wheel starts rolling, get out of the way. It's, I mean, it's going to roll fast. So when they have it, they're going to happen suddenly one right after another. So did John mean shortly or did John mean to say suddenly? When you look at other prophecies in the New Testament by Paul and Peter and James, they were all under the impression that the time was short as well. We don't believe that it is a contradiction, but it is a revelation about God's timing. 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. Beloved, be ye not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years was one day. God views time differently than you and I do. Psalm 9 and verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Can you imagine getting a good night's sleep and waking up and discover it's been a thousand years? Well, that's how it is with God. We're creatures of time, but God dwells outside of time. So when the Bible says it is the last days, from God's viewpoint, it is the last days. But then finally tonight, and I'll, I'll be done, there is the promise related to the book. There's a promise at the beginning. There's a curse at the end. Blessed is he that readeth. It's interesting that before the invention of the printing press, every manuscript had to be copied by hand. We know that this letter was sent at least to seven churches. Can you imagine how long it would take to make seven copies for those seven churches? Painstaking work. But in the church's custom of Old Testament Jewish congregations and first century churches, the custom was to have an elder read aloud portions of the scripture because everybody didn't have a copy of the scriptures. You'll notice he that read, it's a singular, they that hear is plural. So it's promising a blessing to the man who reads and exhorts this word. Blessed is he that readeth. And then they that hear, that hear the words of this prophecy seven times in the book. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And keep those things which are written therein. When Moses gave the law to the children of Israel, he told them to keep it. The law is something that you do. So you keep it by doing it. But how do you keep a prophecy? How do you do a prophetic event? It's not something for you to do, but you keep it in your heart. You guard it in your heart as a treasure. You keep it in your heart. So this is the first step of a, of a long journey. 
If prophecy does not excite you, I hope that by the end that it will excite you. I'll never forget a man, the last time I preached this series of prophecy years ago, I'll never forget a man, Jacob Cummins will sing something. I'll never forget a, young, a, young, a man that came to me, he said, I, I really don't like prophecy, prophecy bores me. And I said, well, which part of it bores you? The rapture of the church? The second coming? Is it the millennial reign of Christ that you find so dull? Is it eternity in heaven? Which part of this prophecy that you don't care anything about, which part bores you? I hope it does not bore you. We're going to identify the rapture when it takes place and the coming world leader and the wrath of God and a group called 144,000. Look at major battles like Gog and Magog and Armageddon. In the British Museum in London, England, there is a map. It is called the Mariner's Map, and it dates back to 1525. In 1525, an explorer came to America and sailed up and down the coastline and mapped out, as they would do, the coastline. The coastline. We don't know if he went inland at all, but just sketched out the shape of the coastline. And on that map, on that map, he made some notes at different places along. And at one place, he wrote, here be giants. At another place, he wrote, here be dragons. Another place, here be scorpions. I think that he was intimidated by moving inland to this wild frontier. 1525. In the 1800s, another British explorer named Sir John Franklin got a hold of that map, and he had explored the same coastline. Sir John Franklin took a pen, and it's in the British Museum, that map, and he scratched out all 